pray. Father, we have uh, expressed to you our delight in knowing that we are fully cleansed, that all of our sins have been laid on Christ, and we can therefore know that it is well with our souls. No matter where we are, no matter what's going on in, the, in this world, Lord, we thank you that when we are at peace with you and know the peace of Christ in our hearts, Lord, surely we are indeed at a place where things are well for us. And I pray, Father, that your word might continue to help us understand more of what it means to walk before you, help us understand what the grace of the gospel, how it's supposed to be lived out in our lives, help us, Lord, to avoid uh, various errors that people have slipped into in their lives. We pray that you'd help us to keep us in the center of the things you've revealed in your will and to avoid areas in which we become focused on ourselves too much. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. God, in his gospel of grace, is incredibly generous. Now, I say that because I want to review what the gospel of grace affirms. Every sinner who defies the God who made them by breaking his laws and committing cosmic treason, deserves eternal damnation. But God, and that's the important phrase, but God, who was under no obligation to help any of us as sinners, because of his great love, chose to provide his eternal son as a sinless substitute in our place. And having taken on flesh, becoming human, Jesus Christ kept the law of God completely and flawlessly. And then he took upon himself all of the sins of his people and he bore the punishment that they deserved on that cross. And God then raised him from the dead and declared that Jesus successfully completed that work of substitution on the cross and then each bankrupt sinner who has nothing to offer God to pay for their sins, each bankrupt sinner who comes and humbly repents of their sin and fully relies and trusts in Jesus Christ alone receives a righteousness that is from God freely as a gift. I'll say it again. To go from being a condemned rebel to being redeemed child of God God, in his gospel of grace, is incredibly generous. Incredibly so. Now, having said that, some people hear that amazing truth and they say, well, wait a minute. I just don't, I'm a little skeptical, but it sounds too good to be true. And they react in two ways that lead them into trouble. Some people say, well, if it's too good to be true, then they stumble over it in this way. One, one reaction to the gospel that leads to a lot of error that we, the whole book of Galatians has been dealing with this thus far. That's where we are, folks. We're back in Galatians. They say, they conclude that if it's so good, it can't be that good. I have to do something. I must offer something to God, and I've got to do something to, to, to bring to him the fact that I have improved myself some way if he's going to treat me this graciously. And so they teach that you must practice certain rituals, you must somehow perform various spiritual disciplines in, order to, in addition to trusting Christ. 
despite the clear teaching of Scripture, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they insist that they have to do something. I've got to do something to gain full acceptance before God. Now we call that, there's a title for this, and I'm going to give you the title of it. This is what Paul's been battling the whole first four and a half chapters of the book of Galatians. It is the error known of corrupting the gospel of grace, legalism. Legalism, where they have a strict, uh, adhering to a strict code of do's and don'ts. I've got to do this, I've got to stop doing this, and that's what will help me then be right with God. And insisting on all these rules as a requirement for salvation, they have abdicated their sense of freedom. Paul pointed that out there in the beginning of chapter 5. He said, listen here, instead of being liberated, you people who follow legalism, do you realize you're now shackled with all sorts of burdened, burdensome obligations and duties? If you say, I've got to do some of the law, you've got to do all the law. So they've really gotten themselves into a bad, bad spot. Now there's another error, and I'd like to spend some time talking about this, and this is where Paul has led us today in chapter 5 of Galatians. So if you'll make your way there in your Bible, Galatians chapter 5, I want us to begin reading in verses 13 to 15. 13 to 15. Galatians 5, 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. Now this second what I would call a stumbling response to the gospel of grace. On the first hand, it's legalism. I've got to add something to what God is doing freely and giving to me in Christ. So the second response that's wrong and leads to all sorts of error in the gospel of grace is to say that God, because he freely forgives me of all my sin and that I'm now free from the demands of the law, people wrongly conclude in their minds, they say, well, if that's true, then I'm free to live however I want. And that leads to a very serious, erroneous reaction to the gospel of grace. And it leads to what we call either permissiveness, if that makes sense to you, permissiveness, or you could say license. That is, I'm free. I have a license to do whatever I want to do. Just going to not care. I don't, I don't give a rip. I'll do whatever I feel like doing. Why? Because I'm totally forgiven. And some people abuse the gospel of grace by celebrating God's generosity by enjoying this freedom to live their life doing whatever they like as long as it makes them happy. And they've reached the wrong conclusion of what the gospel of grace is all about. And Jude, in his very brief postcard, if you will, that he wrote in the New Testament, the next to last book of the New Testament, he ran into people like that in the first century. They're already starting to circulate around. And Jude calls them out on it. He says there are people who are going around exploiting God's grace in salvation, and they're turning grace into licentiousness, which is another word for doing whatever you want to do, living for yourself. Jude 4. 
So here's the Apostle Paul. He's writing this book of Galatians, defending the gospel of grace against those people who were corrupting it. They were distorting it, as I said, with legalism. He spent most of the first four and a half chapters on that. Now we move to verses 13 to 15. He shifts gears and is saying, listen, I'm also concerned if you go to the opposite extreme and say, well, you're saved by grace, but now that leads to license. And people abuse the idea of God's generosity and grace in the gospel. And so his intent here in this particular passage is to clarify what is the freedom of the gospel? What is it really supposed to look like? What is the appropriate response to the freedom we enjoy in Christ? And so he's going to give us several indicators of what is appropriate in terms of that. I'm not going to get to all of them. I'm going to save one until next week. I don't have enough time to fully go into that. Let's look at two of them this morning. Point number one, rather than licentious living, the gospel liberates us to love one another, to love other people. Paul takes on the role, I think, almost like a father here, although sometimes he speaks to them as brethren, like brothers and sisters. He also speaks to them as a, as a father. Chapter 4, verse 19, he calls them my children. And so I think he's assuming a role here. He speaks to them about a concern he has on his heart and mind because he sees that this is a possibility. Some of them are going to go in the wrong direction. I can remember when I sent my kids off to college. None of my, college, none of my uh, children stayed uh, in this area. They all were blessed to be able to go elsewhere. And uh, so as I sent them off, I realized there might be some times where they may need to have some money in case they get into a jam. And I'm not there to give them anything. So I gave them a Discover card that was on my account, but I did so with very clear understanding of what that freedom to use that card meant. The card was meant to be used in emergencies, and I defined what those were, and I helped make very clear going to Starbucks is not an emergency on that card, charge card, or whatever, you know, so I, I made very clear, and by the way, they don't think even ever had to use them, hardly ever, but I gave them that what? trying to explain what that freedom to use my card meant for them. I think Paul's trying to do that here as a loving father and also a brother in Christ. He's saying, listen here, you've got freedom, and I want you to use this freedom, but I don't want you to use it inappropriately. So Paul clarifies the gospel of grace one more time. And he says, rather than throwing off all restraint once you come to Christ through the gospel, the gospel is now ushering us into a new life where we now enjoy the freedom to serve God. We enjoy now the freedom to love God and to love our neighbor in ways that we never did before because we were always focused on ourselves before we were believers. And the gospel enables us to break with our former reliance upon all of our foolish attempts to somehow gain our acceptance before other people through Approval, trying to gain their approval, trying to gain power over people, control over situations, achieving success. Many people are trying to find acceptance by doing all these things and longing for these things from other people. But Paul says, don't you realize you've gained acceptance before God on what Christ has done for you. And therefore, that's liberated you. You don't have to try to achieve yourself as you're somebody and that you've got some kind of status before other people. You've got status with God. You are a person who's been elevated into being accepted by God through what Jesus did, not because you've gotten your act together. You're all messed up anyway. He still elevated you. 
And having accepted us before God on the basis of grace, the gospel then liberates us. It liberates us from the self that always was what we always served and what we always were making sure we bowed down to and made sure that was what we always were focused on. Now we're saying, my self-focused interests are no longer need to be the center of my life. I can now look up above and realize there's other people and other needs around me. It's not all about me all the time. It's about you, Lord. What you've done in my life now has freed me to realize I want to love you and I want to also love others by learning to serve them. Now hear me out here. This is very important if you hear this statement. It sort of summarizes this first point. The gospel of grace never encourages us or promotes in us sinful, self-indulgent living. It's not what the gospel of grace is intended to do. The gospel of grace is intended to reach our hearts. And in reaching our hearts, it transforms our hearts from primarily being motivated to serving our own selves and our own self-will, which, by the way, is what he calls here in verse 13. It's our flesh doing what comes to us naturally in terms of our sinful desires and a sinful self-will. That is our flesh, which does carry on. Even when we're now a believer, I still struggle with the flesh, the old part of me that still hangs on. And he says, I'm not going to sit there and serve my flesh as this freedom I have in Christ. That's not what the gospel is meant to do. It's meant to transform our hearts to the point where we have new desires, new aspirations to want to serve God and our neighbors out of a new, a new motivation, out of gratitude to God. Not because I have to. Not because I'm trying to impress other people, but because I, I just can't help but just be thankful for what God has done to me and how he's given me these riches that I don't deserve and I didn't buy them and I didn't pay him back for them. I'm just so thankful. It makes all the difference in the world in how we deal with other people. And the gospel, it's true the gospel frees us from the needing to keep the law and somehow gain our acceptance before God, but it does not free us from keeping the law as a way to please God, which is a totally different motivation. The God who saved us, the God who adopted us, the God who lifted us up and gave us that new status, a new identity as followers of Christ. You say, well, if we're called to love, that sounds all nice and good, but let's, let's be specific. What are we talking about here? What does that look like? And Paul is so good. Notice how he talks about verse 13. It's not a launching pad once you become a believer to just live for yourself and just fulfill only your own selfish desires. He says, listen, once you come to Christ, do you understand? Now, he says, you're called to love people. And how do you do that? You serve other people. Serve each other. Now, oh, wait a minute. Now we're getting down to nitty gritty. Serving? I have to serve other people? One of the best ways to love someone whether we're talking about God or we're talking about other people around us, is serving. It's focusing on the needs and the interests of somebody else. And by the way, that is fundamentally what a servant does, isn't it? A servant is focused on making sure that other people's needs are met. I don't know how many of you are watching Downton Abbey, but uh, some of us are unfortunately still uh, watching this thing. Um, I'm not as big a fan as I was earlier. But it's a story about uh, a family in England who have this humongous estate and they're filthy rich, but they're nice people overall. 
And so uh, they have a whole downstairs of this estate of people who are living in this humongous mansion, and they're there to serve the family in ways that are mind-boggling. Here, let me help you with your jacket as you put your, put your clothes on for the day. I'm like, who needs people to help you do stuff like that? Anyway, that was the point. They, they, are, they are there to serve the family who lives in the house, and the family is offering them compensation and housing. But think of it, what it means then to serve other people as you become aware of what the needs are of other people. You're not just focused on yourself. And someone one made a very interesting observation. If you boil down the essence of so much of biblical instruction in the Bible, it boils down to this. You learn two things in the Bible. There's two ways of living, and it's taught by basin theology. Basin theology. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Basin theology. There's two bowls of water that are contrasted in Scripture. One is found in Matthew, chapter 27. It's symbolized here in this bowl, which I would imagine would have been in a high and elevated position with a large crowd of people with Pontius Pilate standing there, with all sorts of people, big mob of folks, screaming and yelling, and there he is as a politician. And what is on his heart that day? What's on his mind? He's got a person over here who is being on trial, supposedly, who's never done anything wrong, and he's being, they want him to be condemned to be crucified as a criminal. The lowest form of punishment possible anyone would give him. And so he's standing as the one who's in charge of this thing. So what does he say? I don't see the fault of this guy. They scream louder. The crowd is pressing in on him. And as a politician, what is he thinking? I want to save my skin. I want to keep my position. I don't want to riot on my hands. I don't want trouble. I'll do whatever. So what does he do? He puts his hand in the water, symbolizing what? I'm washing my hands, everybody, of this. Don't blame this on me. I have nothing to do with this. Even though full well... He is going to condemn this innocent person under his watch. It's his authority doing this. He's caving to the crowd and offering Jesus up to them as the worst example of the injustice in all human history. But all oh, he washed his hands in order to do what? In order to preserve himself. He has himself at the center of the world. Now he's looking like he's trying to you know, be Mr. Uh, uh, I'm showing you that I'm uh, you know, highly ethical person. But believe me, all he's worried about is saving his own political skin, doing the politically expedient thing. And isn't that the way many of us, if we're not careful, if we don't understand and keep the gospel of grace in front of us, we easily slip into what? Sacrificing other people and serving our own self-preserving interests. How do we do that? Well, there are many examples, but some people use gossip. Oh, a couple of nice, juicy morsels of gossip and pass that on about somebody, and that gets passed on to somebody. Listen, man, it'll help advance me. I know something you don't know, and I'm going to show you that I'm in the know of all this stuff, and I'll destroy this person through my tongue, wagging about some baloney that doesn't need to be repeated. And there are others of us who spend our time, who spend money that we don't have on things we don't need and therefore cause tremendous problems either for ourselves or even for our family. When we're not cooperating and working on a, on a budget and, and restraining our desires and our, our, our spending. Other people have escaped into the fantasy world of lust on the internet. You talk about destroying a marriage because somebody was so interested in just 
sort of going into this world of their own fantasy world and destroying the sense of trust and the sense of, of fidelity and all of the pain they've inflicted on another person. It's all about what? Washing their hands, just focusing on themselves, sacrificing somebody else. And then there's others who walk out of their marriage, who back out of those vows, who turn their back on the person they said they would love forever. Or are there others who say, I'm never going to marry you. I'm just going to, I just want you to stop pressuring me. Don't, don't ask me to do those kind of commitment things. And so a whole generation of our people now just forget marriage. What is that? That's the washing the hands of personal responsibility. I don't want to be tied up in all that because I'm really interested in me and my own needs. I mean, we could go on and on. But what a contrast in the other hand. John chapter 13. Dip down where the knees are. The nitty-gritty, the dirty feet. And Jesus with his disciples. Here he is, what? They all have, they're all leaning on their elbow, facing the table here. He's in the back behind them with all of their feet, taking off sandals, dusty feet. Everybody knew that should have been done. Everybody in that room would have said, what are we doing? We're starting to eat. Nobody's washed our feet. And they said, I'm not going to do this feet. He's one of me. I'm not, I'm not doing his feet. They're all thinking, I'm not doing that hole. And they all balked at it. And here's Jesus. who says, it came from God and getting ready to go back to the Father. Here is God in human flesh getting down his knees. And he has his feet, his hands in that hole, washing their dirty feet. Now what's he doing that for? He's meeting the needs of other people. Demonstrating to them what the kind of selfless love looks like. It serves. It finds a need. It humbles himself. He gets down on the lowest level. He assumes the lowest rank among them all and says, I am getting involved in helping to meet this need. It was powerful. What a powerful lesson he gave them. And what happens to us? Well, let me tell you, folks. Jesus gave us an example of not living a self-fulfilled life. He gave us an example of saying we ought to serve other people selflessly. That means it's inconvenient. It means it takes and demands of me some things that are not easy to deal with. It can be challenging, frustrating. And Jesus, though, here let me be clear on this. Jesus gives us freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. And that's a big difference. And so therefore, these base in theology hopefully is trying to help us have a clear image of that in our minds. And so the gospel liberates to serve. So my question is, how do you view yourself? Which one do you identify with? A person that likes to play to the, to, to the crowd? That you like to hear the praise of men? That even in your serving, are you still oriented toward the crowd? Do you need a pat on the back? you need somebody to commend you? you need somebody to notice what you're doing? And that's why you're doing it? Or do you say yourself, you see yourself as, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. I have been taken out of bondage as a slave, and now I have a new master, a master who gave himself for me out of love and has elevated me to have the privilege of serving him. And therefore, as his servant, I see myself as wanting, therefore, to serve others because I'm so thankful, so very thankful. Peter picked this up. He, he caught it here. In 1 Peter 2.16, he says, Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use your freedom as bond slaves of God. 
Wow. Bond slaves of God. Here we find the gospel then motivating us to lay aside our interest so that we would help those who are around us. So I ask, my, ask the question then, who is around you that God is calling you to serve? You say if you're married, if you have children, you've got to start there, right? If you're not married, you're single, you've got your church family, right? You've got other relatives, you've got people that work. There are many dimensions in which we can see ourselves as having opportunities to serve. The question is, what is service calling us to do? If we are truly going to love, then how does that, what does it look like in serving? And I would just say this, around your house, what's the least favorite task that needs to be done? Empty the trash? Give the kids a bath? Clean the toilet? Pay the bills? Wash the dishes? I mean, there are always things that... They're not fun. They're not enjoyable things that give you lots of, you know, thrilling feelings, you know. But it, it's, it needs to be done. It's service. That's where service goes. It takes us into doing tasks that many people don't want to do. But it needs to be done. And you help other people. Here's another question I'd like to ask. Let's go beyond just doing things. Let's talk about how we interact with people. When you're interacting with someone, do you assume the role of humbling yourself and do you ask good questions when you're in a group of people? Do you ask them to explain what's going on in their world? Do you show interest in what they've been through, what they're experiencing, what's going on in their struggles or their joys or whatever, and you encourage them to, to share? Or do you spend most of your time in speaking to people, well, I did this and I did that and I want you to do this and I did this and I think this and I... Is it all about you? And are you the one that primarily does all the talking when you're in a relationship? Because that's not serving. That's saying, I want you to be impressed with me. Serving says, I want, to be impress- I want you to know that your needs are being met and you have a need to have somebody listen to you. I want to be those ears. I want to listen. I want to help you. I want to encourage you. I want to pray for you. This could go in 20 directions, folks. It's so practical. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will help us as we think about the gospel liberating us to serve like our master. Philippians chapter 2, who did what? Who humbled himself even to the point of a lowly servant. And ask yourself, Lord, where are you asking me to humbly serve this week? You are so generous, so gracious, so forgiving, so elevating and bringing me up from where I was. And, and giving me this incredible new identity and, and, I, and, uh, and status. Therefore, I, out of love for you and out of love for my fellow brother, I want to serve. Where can I serve? Secondly, what a correction for, for uh, living a, a licentious life, huh? serving. Number two, rather than licentious living, the gospel liberates us to live according to biblical standards. Biblical standards. Now, we're not talking about being rule keepers here. I'm not trying to say, I'm going to say, well, because of the gospel of grace, we have all these rules we have to keep. That's not what Paul is saying here at all. What does he do? He goes right back to the law, verse 14, and says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He takes the Bible and he says, listen, you can take the entire commands and all the injunctions and exhortations in this massive book made up of 66 sub-books within it, and you can take all that and boil it all down to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the chief duty of man. And that's what Jesus said, right? Matthew 22, maybe you could look that up some other time and uh, get back to that and read that. But 
Jesus is clarifying, saying that you can summarize it all, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, quoting uh, different passages of the Hebrew Scriptures. And one of the dangers of the freedom that comes with the gospel of grace is that some people want to sever it from gospel truth. In other words, they want to say, well, I'm free now to, to operate in ways in which the Spirit's going to leave me just to sort of do my own thing over here. And Paul says, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He says, the gospel in which God takes up residence within you and he creates you and is changing your heart, he says, he is now liberating you to, so you can learn to love him, and that it means to love him with all your heart, wholeheartedly. And how do you do that? As you learn to love and serve your neighbor as yourself. You say, well, does that mean then that I need to work hard on loving myself more? Now, what do you think? What do you think? Do you need really help in learning to love yourself more? Modern psychology says yes, and they completely miss it because the the scriptures assume that we already love ourselves. And how do you know if you do? Well, we know what we do because what have you done for yourself recently? Well, everything. I make sure I get something to eat. I make sure I wear decent clothes. Some people spend a lot of time and a lot of work, a lot of money on looking nice. I, I try to make myself, and we appreciate it, comb your hair and all those kind of things, you know, hygiene, all that stuff. That's good. But you make sure you get a shower. That's good. Some of us shave. Some of us invest our time and energies into entertaining ourselves. Man, we want that latest game, video game. Yes, we want to get that latest uh, you know, our, our pad or, or our electronic things we're looking at. We want to keep up on We want to make sure we get all that. Yeah, we don't deprive ourselves of those things. You see, we automatically do that. You don't, nobody has to teach you to love yourself. You do it. But the Bible doesn't say, stop loving yourself. It says, love other people to the same degree or the same level of commitment that you have to love yourself. He's saying just take what you already do and now transfer that to push the emphasis onto other people around you. The standard of biblical living is to do what's in the best interests of others, not merely ourselves, to be concerned of our neighbor. So that's why Paul in this passage here, verse 15, interestingly enough, it's not surprising that he is just reacting to the craziness of what's going on in this church, in the churches there in Galatia. Rather than seeing the gospel of grace produce biblical living where Christians are liberated to break free from the patterns of their past before they were saved, he says, I'm seeing these same patterns of, of me, me, me lived out and re- they're reverting backward now to the self-centered, self-focused living. And he says the fruit of that is I'm seeing a division among the people of the church. They're biting and devouring each other. You almost get the impression of what? Wild animals chewing on each other, attacking each other. It's awful. And what I would suggest to you, what's happening here in this church, is that the fruit of false teaching always undermines unity and always undermines love among the brethren. And that's what was happening in this church. Some people thought they had arrived, and they were the ones who were circumcised. They were the ones who were doing a little extra and doing the law, whatever. And they were looking down at the other people, and I mean they were going at each other. Didn't care about this group. They were just destroying them. And rather than seeing the supreme command of loving God and loving our neighbor lived out in these relationships of brothers and sisters in this church in 
in Galatia, they're acting like animals. Isn't that sad? That Christians, followers of Jesus, would act like animals. And the problems that arose among them, he says, instead of dealing with their problems and focusing on ways to find solutions, what were they doing? They were attacking the person, not the problem. Attacking a person instead of attacking the problem. Have you ever seen that done? You ever had an argument? Starts off talking about some silly little thing that happened, right? Have a disagreement about something up here? And what happens? That comment just sort of irked me. I don't like you saying that. I don't like your expression. I didn't like your face, your facial expression. I didn't like what you just wagged your finger at me. like. And so next thing, it goes down the next level. And what do you hear? Well, you never do that. You never pick up your clothes off the floor. Which is a what? Absolute statement for what may be true sometimes, but not all the time. But then the other person reacts to that saying, oh, yeah? Well, you always say that, and you always do this when you do that. So then they throw it right back at them. Again, are we dealing with the problem here? Are we just what? No, we're just defending ourselves. We're trying to make you look bad so you'll back down and stop giving me grief for what I don't want to deal with in my life. And so then it goes down to another level. Yeah, but you remember that time when you said, and then they go back into history, dredge up the past, bring up all this mess of what happened a long time ago. has nothing to do with right now, but we're going to bring it up as a what? As a weapon to whack you over the head with it and to make you feel guilty and to try to add further shame to you. Again, we're not dealing with the problem here. Now we're dealing with each other, and I'm going to attack you. And then that descends down to the level of what? You're a lazy, no good, nothing. You're a good person. And so they're throwing grenades at each other. And some people speak awful words are said about what another person is on those moments when they are biting and devouring each other with their words. And oh, I'm telling you folks, those are deep, deep wounds. When you start throwing out phrases about what somebody is, you can't get those back. And then somebody will go even a lower level than that. They'll say, yeah, you're worse than your mother. Whoa, now we're going to attack the whole family. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, this is the real, this is real life. Paul sees this stuff going on. And it is just breaking his heart because he's saying, if you understand the gospel of grace, you understand that the grace that God has shown you is not to result in people just going way off into their own little world of defending themselves and lacking of love in each other and attacking each other. So I wonder if you can say, Lord Jesus, I need to come and confess to you that in my discussions I have with people in my life, I've become inflamed at times, and I've seen some hostility in my heart, I've seen some ill will in my heart, I've attacked people's character, I've attacked their motives, I've attacked their family, I've attacked their worth as a person, I've attacked their abilities, and Lord, I just ask you to forgive me and cleanse me, and after you've prayed that prayer, I would urge you to go right to the person to whom you said it. Say, I feel like the Holy Spirit's convicted me on this. I just want you to know the gospel was never intended for me 
to convey that that's what God is like. He's not like that. That was me. That was my flesh. You saw my flesh ugly, rearing up its ugly head. See, what God's will for us is what? Jesus did not come to liberate us from guilt and shame on the basis of grace, only to have us destroying each other. And if your family has that kind of dynamic going on there, I'm urging you to think through the gospel of how it applies to you and how you react to those situations and break that pattern. And one of the greatest ways you can start that is to confess your sins to that person, acknowledge you're wrong, stop defending yourself, go to higher grounds, we say, in this, uh, in this material, which we will, by the way, start in March. We've had to move it back a little bit. But the first Sunday of March, I'm telling you, resolving conflict God's way, you need to be there, it is uh, excellent material. Here we go. One more thing I want to say about this. Why is it inappropriate when, they're, when we're attacking people and not the problem? Because what that means is we're attacking ourselves. You say, what do you mean? Well, it's like a dog biting its own tail. In other words, we are part of each other. We're a body. And so therefore, when one is attacking the other, it's like you're attacking your own self. So therefore, it makes no sense. The gospel certainly does not call us to do that. I want you to turn to one of the texts, and I'm done here. 1393 in your pew Bible, Ephesians 4.29. Ephesians 4.29. I don't have time to get into my next point, and you should be thankful, because that would be a long one, and it's going to be a whole sermon given to it. But where he goes next in Galatians 5 is he goes into the talking about the Spirit of God and living according to the Spirit's lead and enjoying the freedom as the Spirit guides us and leads us in how He wants us to live. And notice this, Ephesians 4.29, a very important verse. You need to memorize this. If you have a problem with how you deal with your anger and what you say and you're angry and you feel like your words are destructive and people have told you that, here's a verse for you. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the moment, need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. Wow, if that was just put into practice in our marriages, in our church, in our situation with our children, what a huge difference that would make. Now, what happens next after that verse? Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Isn't that interesting? When he starts talking about words and how our words are destructive to other people, and talk about using words as hammering people over the head, and the next verse he talks about is verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away, and malice. What's he talking about? He's talking about anger that is sinful, that is oftentimes expressed through our words. And what is the dynamic of that for a Christian? That grieves the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is not leading you into that kind of behavior that is walking contrary to what the gospel of grace is calling us to do. That's where the Spirit is trying to get us to go. And all I can say to you, my friend, is this. I hope that this week your prayer will be, Lord Jesus, I want to remember you and the basin that you used, and I want the Spirit of God to lead me in this direction. Holy Spirit, help me. I need help because I'm weak and my flesh easily is where I'm going to go unless you help me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we thank you for the practical nature of your word. It very clearly speaks to our hearts.
Oh, but it gives, us, it gives us hope, along with convicting us of sin. Lord, it gives us hope. It gives us help. It helps us point the way. It, it shows us a direction to go and helps us to, to, uh, to correct us and to reprove us, but also, Lord, to, to edify us to know what is appropriate in this situation, to live out our life before you. So, Father, I pray that your Spirit truly would have his way in our lives. I pray that we might be reminded of who we are. If we are Christians, we are servants of God. We're called to serve God and serve other people around us. Lord, I pray that there might be some amazing things happening this week as your Spirit prompts us to get out of our comfort zone, to get out of our mode of just looking out for number one. Lord, give us, we pray, a new fresh appreciation of the gospel that leads us to serve, to offer our hands, to offer our ears, to offer our mouths to edify and build up people that we might, Lord, show forth how thankful we are to you and therefore how much we understand the riches of the gospel of grace in Christ. This is our prayer.